We're going to do something very weird today. We're going to use our imaginations. It's not something grown-ups do very often, but we're going to try. I mentioned to a few of you, the uh, Bukultas and the Fords and, and the Carberts. We're, we were at the Egg 500 yesterday, and um, everyone around us was drinking. And I mentioned that the start of this sermon may sound like I've been drinking as well. I assure you I have not been, uh, but it's going to get really weird really quickly. So here we go. You can close your eyes if you want, if you want to, if that heightens your imaginative powers, whatever. But imagine a baby. That shouldn't be too hard. A normal human baby wearing a diaper with his rolly little tummy and his chunky little thighs and his droopy little diaper. But this baby is wearing more than a diaper. This baby is wearing an astronaut helmet because this baby is in space. That's right, a baby in space wearing a space helmet and a diaper and running shoes? Yes, that's right, running shoes. This baby is running a race in space. Well, maybe not running exactly, perhaps more like toddling his way towards the finish line in his his little Nikes and his little space helmet, and he's toddling his way through the stars. But this baby is not alone in space. That would be ridiculous. This, (laughs) Because none of the rest of this is ridiculous. But this baby is not alone in space. So using our hyperactive imagination, we can imagine this space racing baby surrounded by spectators. And the spectators are zombies. Filthy, undead, reanimated corpses with skin falling off in patches and hair hanging in clumps. Their disgusting guttural sounds and rancid rotting smell filling up the void of space. Yeah. But space racing baby is unafraid of the zombies. In fact, the baby is grinning from ear to ear as he toddles toward the finish line. Not because he's unaware of their impurity, but because he is undeterred by them. As this athletic astro-infant nears the end of the race, the unclean zombies fall further in the distance, and you suddenly see a huge juice jug over the baby's head as he receives a victory shower of Gatorade like a football coach who's just won the Super Bowl. The baby's smile grows wider. And that's when you notice that the space racing baby has something small in his adorable little hand. It's rectangular and leather bound and maybe stained a little red from the Gatorade bath. And on the front, you can just barely make out a little golden cross. Somebody gave this space racing baby a tiny Bible as he ran his way across the glittering galaxies of the universe, unafraid and unhindered by the unclean undead presence lurching behind. The beautiful baby boy is beaming under his helmet, thrilled by the knowledge that his blameless race has led to glorious victory. Despite the impure aggression of the surrounding zombies, despite his tiny Nikes needing to overcome the heartless void of space, despite the burden of carrying the word of life in his chubby little arms, despite being a helpless infant, despite all these challenges and setbacks, the space racing baby never complained. Instead, he kept his focus on the stars ahead and felt the thrill of triumph, the strength of steadfastness, the power of purpose, all topped off with the glory of the Gatorade bath being poured out on top of him in celebration. The baby rejoices even before the finish line, for victory will soon belong to him and those he's inspired. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Perhaps... It's not your eyes. Maybe it's your ears you need to reopen because you tuned all of that out because it was just nonsense. But it's safe to come back now because as totally random and ridiculous as that imagination exercise may have been, it's actually a portrait of someone very familiar. As we study our way through Philippians, we now come to the end of the second phase of Paul's friendly letter. 
In the first phase, Paul updated his dearly beloved church about his own circumstances and his own mindset. That's chapter 1, verses 1 to 26. But in 127, there's a transition. No longer is Paul updating the Philippians on how he's doing. Now he begins exhorting them. That means urging them, teaching them to lay down their selfish ambitions and proud arguments and to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The keys to this Christ-like conduct are courage, endurance, humility, and most of all, above all, the cherry on top, which is unity. All of this is most perfectly found in the character and mindset of Jesus as outlined in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So that's the first moving into the second phase, but in today's passage, Paul wraps up the second phase of his letter. He'll tie together a great many themes from the first paragraph of this section, which was chapter 1, 27 to 30, and he'll do so by connecting his beloved Philippians to the long-running, unfolding story of their spiritual ancestors, the Israelites. But I'm warning you, buckle up, because every single element of the imaginary space racing baby, there he is, every element of the imaginary space racing baby will pop up again in our passage today, which is Philippians 2, 14 to 18. The baby is Paul, but hopefully, as we'll see, the baby is also you and me. So polish up your space helmet, lace up your tiny little Nikes, grab hold of your life-giving Bible, change your diaper if you need to. And above all, get ready to shine blamelessly together as brothers and sisters. So we're going to read, we're focusing on 2.14 to 18, but we're going to read 2.12 to 18. So here we go. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So, Do you see the various metaphors from our imagination exercise coming together here? Maybe, maybe not. We'll come back and unpack that lovely little bundle of mixed metaphors in a few minutes. But first, I want to take a look at how Paul is, as usual, accomplishing several things all at the same time here. The first thing he's doing is, as I mentioned earlier, tying a nice ribbon over this, which is the second phase of his letter. So he's wrapping up phase two of his letter before he moves on to the next thing. Um, we can tell he's doing so because, so because so much of the language of chapter 2, verses 12 to 18 connects directly to the language of ver- chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, where phase 2 began. The themes are connected. And here I'm going to quote Frank Thielman. He authored the NIV application commentary that I read um, on Philippians. And I'm going to just quote him because he's much more succinct, succinct than I am. And he writes, The language and themes of... 2, 12 to 18, also show that Paul's turning again to the themes of 1, 27 to 30. He is concerned in both passages that, A, the Philippians live out the implications of their initial response to the gospel, and that they do this whether Paul's among them or absent from them. So in chapter 127, the start of this phase 2, he writes, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know you stand firm. And then at the end, 2.12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, 
not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds very similar, right? Both passages also express concern that the Philippians be unified. That's the cherry on top. So in one twenty-seven, he says, I, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And in 2.14, he writes, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And in, in other words, avoid the things that create disunity. And furthermore, he's concerned that this unity be visible to the unbelieving world outside. So in 128, he says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And in 215, he says, become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So not only be unified, but that unity should have an impact on the world around you. Uh, Thielman continues, he says, the two sections also share an interest in the final day. 128 speaks of a sign to them that they'll be destroyed and you will be saved. And 216 says, I will be able to boast on the day of Christ. So both the passages look forward to the end times. And in the experience of suffering for the gospel, which binds the apostle to his friends and apostolic charges in Philippi. So in 130, it says, to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had. 217 says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So both passages, the start and the end of phase two, talk about Paul's suffering, their suffering, joining together. So that's a lot of things that are very similar between the start of the intro to this passage that we've spent a couple months on now and the the outro. So it's pretty clear that Paul's wrapping this all up before he moves on to something new. Thielman writes, sorry, the concerns of 2.12 to 18 then are woven tightly into the fabric of Paul's larger argument that the Philippians should conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul's bringing the second phase of his letter to a close and he's bringing the most crucial letter or lessons of that phase to the forefront before he moves on to the next thing. So all of that, all of this, has to do with living a way that brings glory to Christ. That's right in the middle there. He explains who Jesus was really powerfully and beautifully. But it all has to do with living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now he's wrapping that up. The language is all very similar. However, however, I took top-level English in high school. I did very well in my top-level English in high school. And before it sounds too much like bragging, I could tell you my math grades in high school, they were not top-level. They were very, very unimpressive. But the main thing I did well in high school English was write essays. I loved writing essays. And the main lesson about writing essays that I remember from my high school English is that your introduction and conclusion should be directly tied to the content of your essay. Whatever you talk about in the intro should be present throughout the body of your essay, and you should never introduce anything new at the conclusion that wasn't present in the body beforehand. A good conclusion draws on the material that's already present. A good conclusion doesn't present new themes, new ideas, or new images, right? You probably remember that from high school English as well. Well, Paul must have never taken English 30 with with Miss Seward like I did, Because although our passage today does a good job of tying in the themes from the intro and the body of the second phase of the letter, it's it's all about the same thing. It's all about living lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. But it fails miserably at the rule about not introducing new themes and new images. Because as our little thought experiment from the intro of this sermon demonstrated, Paul goes absolutely off the deep end with his kaleidoscope of images and references. It's a bit dizzying, actually, all these new images that he he brings together and it's it can be difficult to make sense of so we'll take a few minutes 
to illuminate this blameless space racing baby that I went on and on about earlier, what it, what it has to do from, from verses 14 to 18, what it has to do with us. The first thing to recognize about all these crazy mixed metaphors is that they're not quite as random as they seem. Each one of the elements I mentioned in our little thought exercise is taken from verses 14 to 18, but each aspect of verses 14 to 18 is in turn taken directly from the Old Testament. In fact, this passage, 14 to 18, is unparalleled in Paul's writing for its overabundance of Old Testament imagery. It is chock full of Old Testament. So we're going to go element by element and see where it comes from, and in the end, see what it can mean for us. First element. It's from verse 14. It says, do everything without complaining or grumbling. Complaining, anytime you see the word grumbling in scripture, it's a reference to something from the Old Testament. Not only is this sentence the key to everything that follows, so this whole 14 to 18 is be unified. Don't grumble and complain even in your suffering. So not only is this the key to everything that follows and the best summary of everything that came before, but it also harkens back to a very famous or rather infamous, time in Israel's history. What is the act of deliverance that's referenced by the Old Testament writers more than any other act in in the Old Testament? The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover, the Exodus, in other words. The, The being drawn out of Egypt by God to be formed as a new people. That's right. And the parting of the Red Sea in particular is the the act that they always go back to. Throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, they always go back to the Exodus and the parting of the sea. He splits the sea, they cross safely, and then the Egyptian army is destroyed by that same water. It's a powerful miracle. It serves as a beacon of God's providence throughout the rest of the Old Testament story. But there's another side to that salvation story. As soon as Israel crosses to the other side in Exodus 15, they immediately sing God's praises. That's called the Song of Moses and Miriam. It's a really beautiful passage. It's it's a hymn of worship, a, a hymn of thanks to the God who's just delivered them. But the very next thing that happens, as soon as the song is done, it says, for three days they went to the wilderness. They couldn't find any water. They found a place with water. It was bitter to the taste. And what do they start doing? Grumbling immediately they start grumbling. Three days after this enormous miracle of deliverance, after millions of Israelites have joined together with one song singing praise to the God who saves them, after the whole nation glorifies him, after they they pass through the water together, drawn out of slavery together, three days later, they're already complaining and grumbling to their God. They're in the desert, they're thirsty, they begin to complain, where's the water? What are we doing here? Why did God bring us here to perish in the wilderness? Three days after God parted the sea and destroyed all their enemies, they're already complaining because their water is too bitter. Well, you know what's too bitter? Your attitudes, Israel, that's what's bitter. And for the next four books of the Bible, Exodus to Deuteronomy, God's chosen would be, Chosen people would be marked first and foremost not by obedience and trust and thankfulness, as you would expect. They would instead be identified with whining, complaining, misunderstanding, and mistrusting the very God who's just rescued them. They were a generation of complainers and grumblers, even at times outright saying, we wish, we long for the days when we were back in Egypt under Pharaoh as slaves. We wish we were still there rather than out here as free people, with God as our king. If, if that's not a perfect portrait of humanity and their relation to God, 
I don't know what is. That's the essence of humanity there. Being saved and delivered and still grumbling and complaining for whatever we used to have. And so Paul taps into that idea. The Philippians, like the Israelites in Exodus 15, are the first generation after a powerful, miraculous act of salvation and deliverance. Not the conquering of Pharaoh and some big lake in the middle of the desert. Not that. It's an even bigger miracle. It's the conquering of sin and death through Jesus' death and resurrection. They are the first generation after that miracle, and still they can't get their act together and get along. Still they allow minor complaints and selfish desires to block their effective witness. And we're prone to fall into that same trap as well. So Paul reminds them of that first generation of God's kingdom people who grumbled and complained their way through salvation and were punished without ever being allowed to enter the promised land. That's a very real threat for us as well. If we're so busy grumbling, complaining, infighting, whining about what we want or what we don't want, If we're so busy doing that, then we too are in danger of missing the promised land because we're missing the point. So don't be like them. Seek unity, seek thankfulness, and seek praise rather than personal vendettas and power grabs and complaints. So that's the first Old Testament reference. The next Old Testament reference goes back even further than the Exodus, all the way to the call of Abraham, who was at that time still known as Abram. In Genesis 17... God calls Abram when he's 99 years old and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. This right here is the genesis, pun intended, of our faith history. If Abraham does not walk faithfully and blamelessly, then he's not given a son who is, who then has a son himself who is the namesake of God's people, Jacob becomes Israel, who himself has a son who ends up in Egypt, And then God's people are enslaved, who then call out to God, who send Moses as a deliverer and walks them through the Red Sea to become a nation of complainers. That's the story. And all of that leads to Jesus. But it all goes back to a simple, faithful, blameless man, a shepherd named Abram. And the blamelessness of Abraham is not the same as sinlessness. Don't make that mistake. It's an impossible thing for us to be called to sinlessness. It'd be impossible for us. It was impossible for Paul, for Abraham himself. Instead, the blamelessness and purity referenced in verse 15 of Philippians 2 has to do with having an innocent heart. It's the position of a child before his father, not the position of a filthy beggar before a king. Abraham, Abraham was blameless precisely because of his faithful obedience. It's his trust that made him pure. And the same is true for us today. We're not called to perfection. Lots of Christians think that's what we're called to, but that's not what we're called to. Blameless and pure is not a call to perfection. Blameless and pure is our call to follow our master a little closer every day, every hour, every minute with faith and trust. That's what blamelessness means, being as close as possible, as innocent as possible in the light of Jesus as we follow him. It does mean making less mistakes. It does mean trimming off the things about us that need to be trimmed off so we can follow better. There is a sense of becoming a better person, but that only happens when we are closer to Jesus, when we trust and follow Jesus. We can't do that on our own. So blamelessness and purity has to do with how closely we are following Jesus. Which brings us to reference number three. 
Reference number three is the reason that the protagonist of our little thought experiment is a baby, and it's also the reason he's being pursued by zombies. The baby is the portrait of a child without fault in verse 15, and the zombies are the warped and crooked generation constantly seeking to destroy the children of God. I was trying to think of the image that would best capture a warped and crooked generation, and to me, zombies capture that pretty clearly. And all of this, too, is a reference to the first generation of Israel's, Israelites, but with a twist. Here's Deuteronomy 32, verses 5 to 6. It says, They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Who's God talking to here? Is he talking to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Philistines? No. God... Moses, through God through Moses, is talking to Israel here. It's Israel who is the warped and crooked generation. They are the foolish, unwise people. They are the corrupt people who are not his children. That reputation for grumbling and complaining is catching up to them. And it's shaping their hearts further and further away from their God. In Deuteronomy, it's God's people who are blameworthy, not blameless. In Deuteronomy, it's God's people who are the warped and crooked generations, not the pagan nations around them. Paul, however, flips the script on the language of Israel's failings. Now, as a people who worship the Son of God, as conquerors of both life and death, as pure children of God, we are the faultless ones. We are the blameless ones, or at least we'd better be. We are the light bearers and the hope bringers to a dark and broken world around us. We need to learn from Israel's disobedience, and we need to band together to stand against the onslaught of the zombie apocalypse around us. Sin is unyielding, like a zombie horde. Death is relentless, like a zombie horde. Sin and death do not stop, and all they do is consume. Selfishness and pride hang off of us like rotten flesh, and all we do, all we want to do is consume, consume, consume. That's who we were before we were saved. And doesn't that sound a lot like a zombie? Mindless pursuit of more, more, more. Unyielding, unrelenting, stinking of of rot. That characterizes me pretty good, even sometimes still today. That's the world we find ourselves in. The world that Christians have always found ourselves in. When it says warped and crooked generation, I hear a lot of people say, this is the most warped and crooked generation of them all. That is the most foolish Ignorant thing to say. This generation is no more warped and crooked than any other generation that's ever been. In fact, North America is almost identical to Rome in every way. There's nothing more impure about our generation. It's just a way for old people to say young people need to get their act together. There's nothing more or less warped or crooked about the world we find ourselves in. Christians have always found themselves surrounded by a zombie horde, if you will. Death, relentless sin, rotting flesh. It's its always been there. But we are the innocent children who triumph over that zombie horde of death and sin and rot. We know whom we serve, and he equips us to rise above and conquer, even as we endure. So Paul's language here, hearkening back to Deuteronomy 32, is a call to stop your grumbling and complaining, stop being warped and crooked, and instead be blameless, like Abraham was, in how we trust and follow. This theme is enriched and enlightened by the fourth Old Testament reference, and that's Daniel 12. Daniel 12 is the last chapter of Daniel. Daniel, if you've 
read Daniel and we did some time ago. The last half of Daniel is wild. There's crazy prophecies all over the place. But it comes to this beautiful close. So this is Daniel 12 verses, oh, I think it's 3 to 4. I'm not sure exactly, but it says this. What is 3 to 4? Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the end, or the time of the end. In other words, there is wisdom in staying true to God's word, and there is glory associated with leading others to those words. Those children who cling to their father's words shine like the stars in the sky. That shining is now. The shining begins now, but it's timeless too. When you look at the stars, they're always there. What's the phrase we say for the end of time? Till the sun falls into the sea and the stars fall from the sky. That's our portrait of the end time. The stars will always be there shining for as long as there is time. They will always be there. And that's, that's us. That's those of us who cling to the words of life. Those of us who shine brightly to the warped and crooked generation around us are like those stars. But it's interesting. When do stars shine the brightest? When it's cold, that's true. And when it's darkest, when it's blackest, that's when stars shine the brightest. When the dark is enveloping and consuming, that's when the light offered by the heavenly hosts brings the most hope and the most glory and the most guidance. When the night is darkest, the stars are brightest. Perhaps the greatest season of television I've ever seen is True Detective Season 1. I don't know if any, has anybody seen True Detective season one? I think it's great. I remember the last scene of season one. Um, the last words of the show are spoken by a truly cynical man who nearly experienced death and is sitting out the ho- outside the hospital talking with his best friend. And it's this transformative moment. He says, there's just one story. It's Matthew McConaughey. I could do his Texan drawl if I could. There's just one story. <laughs> Um, light versus dark. That's the only, he talks about growing up in Alaska and there's no TV. So he'd look at the stars and make up stories. And he says, but there's only one story, light versus dark. And his friend who's there with him is, his police partner says, it appears to me that the dark has a lot more territory. There's a lot of black in the night sky to which the transformed man responds. Yeah, you're right about that, but you're looking at it wrong. Once it was only dark. If you ask me, the light's winning. I love that line. It's so good. It's so such a killer line. It used to be all black, but now there's light and the light is winning. They laugh together. The camera pans up to the starry night sky. It's perfection. It's redemption. It's perfect, but it also happens to be totally true. Sure, the world is dark and twisted. It's as warped and depraved and as all-consuming as a zombie horde, and it always has always been that way. But it will not win. It cannot win. And if we cling to the words of our Father, our wisdom and our righteousness and our love will be the stars that shine to guide others to salvation. We will be the lights that illuminate the night sky and kick the darkness back and triumph into eternity. So cling to his words. They bring goodness and wisdom and righteousness and truth. And they bring hope to hopeless people. That's why the baby is in space clinging to a tiny Bible Because like Daniel and like Paul and like you and I, he is in the words of Philippians 2, 15 to 16, shining like the stars in the universe as he holds out the words of life. There's only two more Old Testament references and then I'll wrap it up. 
Reference number five is from verse 16 when Paul says, I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. It's kind of a strange little thing because Paul says all these things, drawing from the Old Testament, then he switches to say, do all these things so that I will not run or labor in vain. It sounds really selfish, but I think all it does is show the past a pastoral heart. He cares so much about the Philippians that their well-being is tied up in his well-being. So he's not being selfish. He's being selfless. Do these things so that we can boast together, so that we can run the race together. He's tying himself up with them. But that image of a race, that's why we sang forever rain earlier, run into your arms. That image of a, of life as a race is a common metaphor for Paul. He loves connecting his own life and ministry and his suffering to a race. In fact, he'll use the exact same imagery in chapter 3 of Philippians. He talks about life as a race. The strain of a race, the discipline of a race, the effort, the endurance, and most of all, the prize at the end. Paul loves that metaphor, and he uses it over and over again, and it applies to us as well. But in this case, surrounded by all these other Old Testament references, we should hear the echoes of a beautiful passage from Isaiah 65 a passage about reconciliation and redemption, which says, No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For my chosen ones will no longer in- so my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Isaiah writes to comfort a soon-to-be-exiled Israel, who will be robbed of their promised land because of their own disobedience. But God will draw them back together and he will bless them. So the the vineyards that they planted, others will harvest. The houses they built, others will live in because of their disobedience. But God's saying a time will come where you'll come back, you'll, you'll have your homes, you'll have your good work to do, and nobody will take that from you. And I will be your God. I will bless you. I will be your father. The sign of their blessing is that God will honor their work and cause it to flourish. They will work rather than toil. Remember that from a couple weeks ago, the difference between work and toil? They will work rather than toil, and they will rejoice. In all of it, they will rejoice. That was true for Paul as well. Paul's labors bore such bountiful fruit that here we are millennia later, we are still the fruit of his labors. It's still bearing fruit. We're still harvesting the results. And it will be true for us as well. If we are united, we will be able to shine for him. And if we're able to shine for him, we will draw others to salvation. And if we draw others to him, then no work we do will be done in vain. Here's a thing that I believe passionately, that it's not about the big things. Faith, ministry, Christianity is not about the big things necessarily. Here's the thing that I believe. I believe that any selfless good that we do, no matter how small, is a radiant miracle that brings glory to God. I believe that any word of truth, any act of grace, any song of praise, any prayer of thanks, any heart of love is another stride in the great race towards the sun. And yes, that is a play on words. The baby is running in space towards the sun. That sun is Jesus. S-U-N-S-O-N. It's Jesus. And every time we do some little act of good, some little act of love, some little selfless thing for our neighbor, And it doesn't matter how small it is, but every time we do it, that's another step in the race towards our prize. There's power in the little things. And I believe that. That's what what, why Paul references Isaiah. Because a, a day will come where God will honor every little act that we do. We will not run or labor in vain. Everything we do will bear fruit. That's already true now, I believe. 
whether the people were doing good to pick the fruit and eat it themselves and are nourished by it, that's not up to us. We can't control what other people do. We can only control what we do. So what we do had better be good. It had better be loving. It had better be truthful. Now, all of this imagery so far has been victorious and beautiful. And yet for Paul and for the Philippians, death is a constant specter. It hangs over everything. But Paul doesn't ignore its presence. Instead, he concludes by triumphing over death and suffering, suffering, even rejoicing in its ghastly presence. And the image he chooses to represent this victorious rejoicing, the last one we'll talk about today from the Old Testament, the image he chooses to represent this victorious rejoicing is a powerful one that again returns to the Pentateuch. Numbers 28, actually it's also in Numbers 15, but I chose Numbers 28. Um, Anyway, it records the regulations that Israel was to follow for making various offerings to God. So they had to make offerings all the time, sacrifices. Those sacrifices always involved death and blood. It was the offering of blood. So lambs, bulls, rams, they were slaughtered and offered to Yahweh. But over top of these bloody offerings would be a drink offering, usually wine, which combines with the sacrifice of the animal to form, and I'm quoting God here, a pleasing aroma to him. It's basically a barbecue where you pour wine over top of it. So yeah, that's a pleasing aroma. But it's not the actual physical aroma that pleases God. It's the the, the offering. It's the sacrifice being made that, that's pleasing to him. So not only do they make... Sacrifices, they then pour the drink offering over top. That was true for a whole bunch of offerings. All of the, there's like five different ones mentioned in Numbers 28. They all have an accompanying drink offering that's poured out on top. In Philippians 2, Paul's friends the in Philippi, they're making all kinds of sacrifices, both in and around their neighbors and for the benefit of their imprisoned apostle. So their, their acts of love are being met harshly with the, the flip, the, pagan Philippians around them who love Caesar as Lord and are persecuting the Philippians. So they're, they're encountering incredible, they're making incredible sacrifices. But they also, even though they're poor, are gathering a bunch of money to send to Paul over and over again. So he's mentioning all their many sacrifices that they have to make and, and choose to make. Their persecution and oppression at the hands of Rome make them like the sacrificed animals in Numbers 28. Their offering of their own lives for the sake of the gospel is the most beautiful and powerful offering any person can make to lay down your life for the gospel. In fact, it's the only offering God demands of any of us, sacrificing our whole self, our whole heart to him. That's the only sacrifice he ever wants from any person. It's a lot harder than offering a lamb, I think, but it's a lot better. But if the Philippians are the sacrificed creatures, Paul's suffering is the accompanying drink offering. In other places, most notably 2 Timothy 4 verse 6, Paul connects his own death to a drink offering being poured out in sacrifice. In fact, that's what 2 Timothy 4 6 says. My life is a drink offering being poured out and I'm nearing the end. So in other places, it refers to death. And a similar thing is likely meant here. It, it connects Philippians 2 to Numbers 28, but it also collects, connects Philippi to Clyde. I think, by us joining together, whatever sacrifices we make become mutual sacrifices. And our mutual sacrifices create a pleasing aroma to God. It's a worthy offering. And when we endure together, when we as babies triumph over the zombie horde 
in our shining celestial race, clinging to the words of life offered by our God, when we endure suffering together for his name, then that selfless, selfless sacrifice is like the victorious Gatorade bath at the end of the race. That's, the drink offering is a portrait of self sacrifice and even of death, but it's also a portrait of victory. That that is what makes our offering pleasing to God. It's the Gatorade bath. Every sacrifice we make, enduring suffering to finish the race strong, that is the drink poured out in joyful celebration. It means death to self. It means discipline and endurance. It means longing and striving and hurting for his name's sake. Those are all hard things that we're called to. But it also means victory. It means shining radiantly. It means rejoicing together as we cross the finish line, together in his glorious presence. So all of that combines to make the blameless space racing baby. It's a lot of Old Testament. It's a lot of crazy imagery. It's a lot of words to say essentially the same thing, which is live lives that bring glory to God with selflessness and righteousness and endurance and above all unity. It's all saying the same thing. So I know it's a lot crammed into one thing. But here's the thing. One more time. One more time. Picture that baby. That pure, innocent baby. Picture his little space helmet. Picture his little running shoes. Picture him clinging to the words of life. Picture him surpassing the rotten and depraved consumers around him. Picture him drenched in the red Gatorade of faithful endurance. And above all, picture him smiling. Picture him shining. Picture him beaming both figuratively and literally as he nears the end of his race. And know that all of these elements combine to mean something beautiful, drawn from the Old Testament, thrust into Philippi, and then into Clyde. Because you need to know one more thing. This blameless space racing baby is not just Paul. It's not just the Philippians. It's not just a figment of your imagination. This blameless space racing baby is you. It is who you are. It is your identity as a radiant, victorious child of God. You are the baby. As I said in the intro, focus on the stars ahead and feel the thrill of triumph, the strength of steadfastness, the power of purpose, all topped off with the glory of the Gatorade bath being poured out in celebration when we reach the end of our race. Rejoice, little babies. Rejoice. That's how Paul ends verse 18. I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So rejoice, little babies. Rejoice even before we cross the finish line. For victory will soon belong to us and all those we bring in to join us. So race well, shine well, suffer well, and cling well to the words of life. And know that your fellow babies are racing and shining and suffering and clinging right alongside you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your words of life. And we pray that you would help us to cling to them. And that as we cling to them, you would make us radiant. That we would shine for you, not shine for ourselves shine for our own fame, but shine for your glory. And we pray that as we shine, we will be a guide and a witness to the the broken generation around us. Father, we know that there's nothing special about us except that you are in us. And so I pray that you will continually make us blameless, make us more and more like your son, so that we can shine for you. Thank you for the unity that we have in you. Help us to lay down our grumbling and our complaining and our selfishness to pursue only you, and to pursue you together. We pray that you would make us people worthy of the gospel of your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
That would be ridiculous. This, because <laughs> none of the rest of this is ridiculous. All right, babies, get out there and shine.